Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. We're all about the dynamic and exciting stories that make up the Asian tech ecosystem. We're heading to Shanghai today to meet a man who, obviously, his name goes before him, got a bit of a reputation, and in a good way as well. I mean, he's a mental advisor, investor in Shanghai. He's been involved in the scene since way back. We're going to learn a bit about his story and China matters. Jeffrey Handley, welcome to the show. Hey, Graham. Thanks very much for having me. So you have a lot of awards, Jeffrey. You have a long and illustrious career, but I have to say that I think possibly my favorite, and I don't know if this is going to surprise you, is the one you won in 2012 for the 21 most intriguing people in New York City media. Explain yourself. Where the hell did you dig that up from, Greg? <laughs> was that a surprise? When was the last time you heard that, Wink? I Literally, the day that I won the award was the last time we probably ever talked about it. Is that right? Thanks for bringing it up. Well, I have to say, I mean, you are an intriguing fella, and I'm not saying that to blow smoke up your ass, but it's very true. I mean, I've met you. I mean, let's talk about where I met you. I met you at China Accelerator a few months back. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, it was a day of meetings. I was with Kapil, and uh, I met Oscar and William Balbeet. And then, you know, I was just having this conversation, and I was aware of this guy, this presence who sort of came into the room, this, you know, guy with a ponytail, looked a bit rock and roll. And uh, he sort of like came in and in and out of the shadows. And then uh, you were in the studio at one point. And, you know, that sort of whole idea about being the startup type mentor advisor. And, you know, we have a kind of an image of who those people are, but you definitely are something different. I don't know if that's something consciously that you're building as your image, but, you know, he's a bit... I mean, if you haven't met Jeffrey Hanley, let me just describe the man to you. He's kind of got the ponytail, he's got the tattoos, and, you know, he's very much his own man. Would you agree with that? Wouldn't have any other way, right? Yeah. So what's you going on? be someone else. Well, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's a bit of a story. Cultivated. I mean, there's not really a story to it, it other than it's my story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, even with this, the fund that I'm running now, Hightower, one of the things that we, we make sure we tell people is that we're, we're contrarians at heart. Yeah. I think if you are in this space, whether it's uh, from a VC perspective or, or as a founder, um, if you're not a contrarian, we've already only got like a one in 100th chance of just even mm. breath of success, right? This is not even guaranteed win. If you're just going to do the same as everyone else, then chances are you're not going to last very long. But that's not to say that, um, you know, that, that what I look like on the outside isn't, isn't a manufactured image. No, no. Resulted in many years of uh, suspensions and expulsions from schools, <laughs> um, inability to get any job in the world, um, and so that's why that's why I do what I do. Love it. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. When you, I mean, just when you spot talent, and in a way, your business is about talent, isn't it? It's recognizing people Absolutely. who are talented. It's, it's only about people. Like, right. You know, it's it's actually quite funny. Like I often. When I do, you know, talk at whether it's CA or, or anywhere else um, to the incoming batches, we talk about like what's important mm. from a from a VC perspective. I get really pissed off half the times when everyone's got loads of slides and loads of documents about business plans, business models, uh, and now with like blockchain with token economics and and all these like you know and a lot of stuff on tech and and the macro mm. there, but they have hardly any slides on the people, right? Like literally, it's one slide with a couple of photos banged together, and then sh- some advisors shoved in there as well. Right. And at the end of the day, it's all about people. 
mean, that, that's the only thing that we're, we're spotting. We're spotting for talent, for people, not for, not for anything else. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's something that's largely overlooked, especially today when there's been a rush of easy money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about China. We're going to talk about that in the context of China matters and Asia matters and your history in China as well. And it goes way back. And you know, we've got a long story to tell. But you know, I'm curious, I mean, you're talking about backing people, investing in people effectively. And you, you are a talent spotter for that generation of entrepreneurs coming through. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are they there in China? I mean, are those contrarians there? Are there sort of a generation of Asian Jeffrey Hanleys out there? Shit, yeah. I mean, so uh, my partner on the, on my newest fund, on the Hightower Blockchain Fund, and I, um, we were out at uh, what is now a portfolio company, but we were out there visiting, doing uh, some final bits of DD. Right. They have uh, 25 people in their company, eight PhDs, eight PhDs, wow. 10 masters, and a team, out of a team of 25. So I actually just posted it yesterday on LinkedIn uh, and shared a pic. So when you, you know, when people ask me, if, do they have talent here? That that just is my like my my go to answer is that now. Uh, yeah, if you look yeah. at something like that, I've never been in a room with smarter with a smarter bunch of people, right? Now, are they contrarians? Okay, do they have a, a view that I share? That's a that's that's a different that's a different question. That's mm. From a talent perspective, uh, do they have depth of talent, raw talent, or polished? Yeah, absolutely, they do. I mean, how else would you see the companies that we're building out here? Um, that are turning into to global giants and, mm. and eating up the rest of the world. You know, how how can we build these in, in less than two and three years when it takes you three, four, five, seven, eight in the States uh, or in the Western world? Mm. So, of course, we have talent. Maybe it's a different kind of talent, um, you know, specifically with, in the STEM world. We've got, you know, deep, deep STEM talent. But in terms of the, of the cultural world or the socio um, kind of markers, different, different characteristics to mark different types of, of people. Um, and I think that that's constantly evolving in China. But absolutely, we have talent. Right. And anyone that says any different uh, needs to check themselves big time. Yeah, and there are still a lot of people saying any different, right? I mean, that's oh, yeah. that, that's what we're up against. But we're winning yeah, that battle, kind right? Of scary, though. We're definitely winning the battle, right? I mean, you know, when you and I caught up, we just had the shift in the last six months alone yeah. Yeah. in terms of audience and, uh, and, and just general interest. And whether that's from a, a negative start base, you know, whether it's, the states banning ZTE and, and Huawei getting hit and stuff like that, or it's from a positive. I don't really care as long as the spotlight has shifted. Mm. And so, you know, I think you know guys like us have have a duty, not only to to our shareholders and investors and the teams that we work with. We have a duty to to the larger to the larger world to make mm. sure that they understand, or at least have the ability to understand what's happening out here. Yeah, because I follow a lot of what you post on LinkedIn with interest because obviously there's a lot of people posting a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. You you kind of are one of the few who puts your balls on the line, so to speak. You plant the flag and stand up for something, especially about China. And I noticed, you know, not too long ago, you, you posted some uh, some thoughts about CB Insights, which really, you know, oh, made yeah. me think. And I thought it was really interesting because nobody was, you were saying what people were thinking, but nobody was actually saying it. And that, that was, you know, there was this teardown, wasn't there, which was, you know, of, of yeah. the, the entrepreneurial. I mean, like could, I was, could you I give us a bit of background, like, so just yeah, so the so, listeners know what it's about? So obviously, everyone's aware of CB and 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 and, and his crew. Um, you know, they for a long time they they have been. I've held them in really high regard, uh, just like most most people I know. You know, for a long time, I've looked to them as 
as really a source of intelligence and, and, and a source of a questioning mind, right? Like that says, come on, bullshit, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Or looking beyond what everyone else just sees at the surface. But, you know, of late, um, you know, be it the last year, pretty much, if you, I, I, pretty much if I go into my LinkedIn and dig back, the first time I kind of poked at them was probably about 12, 14 months ago when I said, you know, it's time for you guys to actually start including uh, Chinese companies in your global views, right? Like, you know, these are the best companies in this space globally. Um, and they did start to, you know, they started, I think their first one was AI back about 12 months ago when they did the AI top 100. And in there, they started to include seven out of that top 100 from, were from China. Um, and they were the right companies as well. So I knew they were, they were on the right track. But, you know, it seems to get better. And then all of a sudden, we, you know, we, we end up with crap that we see. So what you're talking about is the teardown that they did on Sephora. Yeah. So they talked about how Sephora has really jumped ahead of the pack, um, taking a startup mentality or in a technology disruptive mentality or innovative mentality to what is a large, uh, a large corporate and, um, and, and won. And they are winning. Now, the whole you know, 50-page report was a decent report. There is at least 20 quotes from senior Sephora people around the world. Um, there is one mention in the whole report, one mention, one word, China, mentioned once. One word mentioned Southeast Asia once in the whole report. It's insane. And just, it's insane. It really is insane, right? So regardless of what subject it was, even if it was just a macro ripper part of, of, of a country from a PE perspective, it would be talking about China, right? And talking about mm. Asia. And they weren't. But specifically from a, a, uh, a disruptive technology and business model perspective, everything that they listed in that, in that, uh, in that teardown, all the reasons why Sephora was winning, 80% of those reasons, so 8 out of 10 of those reasons, uh, and this is not like a number plucked in my butt, right? This is for real. 8 out of 10 of those reasons are actually were generated in Asia. They were, the business cases were generated in Asia, that they were tested in Asia, the models were tested here, the technologies were here. If it was not for here and Sephora being here, Sephora would be dead. Okay. Now, if they don't know that, if Sephora don't know that, well, you know, that's Sephora's problem. But as CB, and under his crew, they have a responsibility to live up to their good name. And they should know the difference. They should know that. And that's what I was most like, most pissed off about, basically. Mm. Um, you know, and I tagged the, the Sephora people, uh, the, the senior management on there, all the quotes from, the, you know, they're all quotes from the guy that heads Africa, the guy that heads Latam, the guy that heads, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe. North America, South America. It's like, are you kidding me? You're talking about video streaming, chat, chatbots, AI, in-store, new, you know, retail, new retail, new retail 2.0. All these things are are basically now foundation China things, right? They're foundational tools, processes, technologies, models that have been generated or created here, reinforced and built up here. Well, the theses of them have been written here. And so to not recognize that, I think you're showing something to someone, um, me and others, but you're also letting yourself down by not taking advantage of that stuff. So hopefully, you know, Anand and his team don't, and I'm no one to them, so hopefully they uh, they take notice of it somewhere, but hopefully they don't get pissed off, and hopefully they see it, um, you know, they see the, the positive of it, which is, you know, basically, we're here to help. I did actually put that in there as well. So there's so many people in this region that can actually help you if you don't know. Um, all you have to do is reach out. So, so what is it? I mean, is it just habit? Is it laziness? I mean, why, given the wealth of data now, and it's not like you can hide from the fact of all of this, you know, the importance of China and Asia. You know, you look at the data, you look, you know, two thirds of the world's middle class by 2030. 
you know, you look at the size of the market, you know, Asia itself is 50% bigger than the US and the EU. Why is it given that? Is it just habit that people aren't going into China or Asia and saying, well, what do you think? What's going on when they're talking about the the fortunes and the, the case studies of global companies that are, are, have a, a huge vested interest in the market? Yeah, I, I, I think habit is a nice way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I break it into three things. It's, it's fear, ignorance and racism. Um, you know, and I'm not like, you know, I'm not one of those people that, you know, stick my hand out about discrimination or whatever. It's like, I mean, I, I'm the most face value guy you can get. So I'm not politically correct, as you said, but I'll call shit as I see it. And that's what I see. I see a lot of fear, tremendous amount of ignorance and inbred racism. Um, you know, the messages that people have or the visions that they have uh, of this region of, of China are ones that were true at one point in time. Mm. Uh, you know, not yesterday, as in like one point in time being 10, 15, 20, 50, 80 years ago. They're pretty outdated views. And, you know, you're right. The data is all in front of us. Um, it's it's pretty, it, it scares me when uh, if I talk to founders or C-suite teams um, of some of the companies that inspire us, right, in the States, and ask them what their China strategies are, mm. and they will, you know, at best they'll say we have a China team. And I don't know much about it um, because it's not that important. Or at worst, it'll be like, well, China's not really in our, you know, in our purview. And that just, that just, it, it worries me. It makes me sad. Um, but it worries me not because I have any vested interest. It just worries me because I know when there is bloodshed and more people dying and getting killed, then it, it's bad for everyone. Mm. And that's what's going to happen to these companies, even the big, big ones, right? I mean, the, the, the large ones that literally are inspirational to us or have been inspirational to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's sad in that way because I can tell you one thing there is nothing stopping the cruise here, right? Like, you know, someone else's ignorance and someone else's misfortune is not any reason or doesn't even enter into the minds of the founders here as to why they should not be just, just ramping and going forward. Mm. So they're just going to go twice as hard and, you know, there'll be twice as much blood spill. I want to link this back into your background, Jeffrey, because I think this is an important part of the context for this conversation and what we're talking about now, because I sort of believe there's like three ways, three sort of viewpoints on Asia, which is that, you know, the first viewpoint is, is that, for example, you know, I'm born in Shanghai, I grew up in Shanghai and, you know, I'm talking about Shanghai. The second one is, you know, I'm from Silicon Valley. I have a view on Asia. And the third one is, is, you know, I'm from outside Asia. I live in Asia. And that's the sort of, viewpoint which we're talking about here and i believe that's when, when i want to get information i want to get credible information somebody who really understands it then that's the person's viewpoint that i go for the person who's sort of come from the outside and therefore has made a conscious choice about being in a place and is able to sort of separate the bs from what's reality and there's a sort of a very interesting story about your backstory about how you got into asia because i remember when we sat in that studio a few months back and there was Oscar, I mean, obviously he came from Spain outside of Asia and Kapil came from India to China and he's been there a number of years. But of all the guys sitting at that table, you had the sort of the, lo- the longest and most interesting background. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You, you described yourself as being in China since the 70s, right? right. I mean, most yep. people say I was in China since, you know, you know, three or four years before the Olympics, right? But you yeah. were way back since the 70s. So... Can we talk about that a little bit? Because that Absolutely. gives you a really interesting perspective on where we are now, right? So 
Where did that all happen? I, I, How did it yeah. start? Um, it, it, you're right. It does. It does. It does uh, influence or affect the lens that I have. Um, but I think, and it will. It does in a positive way. I think. So, yeah, so I, I was born in Hong Kong. Um, my fifth generation born there. My mother is local, and my father is Scottish. So he came out to to Asia in in the sixties. He's been doing business in in China since the sixties. And so he was very early. Um, being raised in Hong Kong. Uh, and Hong Kong being fiercely independent and non-Chinese, you, you grew up with this weird, um, you're not you're not British, mm. um, but you're not Chinese, like mainland Chinese, and you think that you're something. And that's actually, you know, a reason why I think Hong Kong has a lot of issues right now, is understanding who they are. But uh, my first visit to China was uh, when I was about 14, 1989, same year as, uh, as uh, the Tiananmen um, episode. And I went there uh, as, a, as a kid with a school trip, and at that time, you know, you were talking still, uh, you know, prior to Deng Xiaoping's reforms uh, being really in place. You're talking about everyone in blue, uh, blue hats, blue caps, blue uh, blue tops and sh- uh, pants and shirts. No, no choice of clothes. No shops. No restaurants. Uh, and when I say no shops and no restaurants, I mean no shops, no restaurants, nothing. Wow. Uh, no cars. All bicycles. Uh, just buses. And uh, no, no businesses. So they were just, uh, you know, factory number one thirty-five, plastic factory number one twenty-seven, shoe factory number sixteen. Mm. And so for two years, I went that year, first year for for a week, and I came back again the next year uh, on a business studies trip again for another another week or two weeks, and really got to understand or see something very different, coming from a, a purely almost almost utopian capitalist society, which is Hong Kong. Um, and so. That's always been inside uh, something guiding, and, and my father, obviously, his business being in China. I mean, from the, he he did ridiculous things like I think he was involved in planting the first vineyard here. Uh, he sold more Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, so PBR beer, in China than they sold in in the whole of the world combined. He sold more Campbell's soup in China than the whole world combined. So we always had China in the house uh, as a topic of conversation. But then you know we. As we got older, went to university in New Zealand, ended up in New Zealand, um, started my businesses there, and then very quickly came back up this way, though, um, but via via the rest of the world. So via years in Sydney, via years in New York, um, which is where I won that award, as you'll remember. Mm. Um, and uh, then back here after, after the last exit, um, which was, I think, 2014, uh, we left New York and... Um, I had one brother stayed, uh, another brother went back to New Zealand, uh, and then I, I came back to Shanghai. Uh, I knew that this was this was pretty much home uh, mm. now. Yeah. And so the lens is one that is, you're right, it's not an insider lens. It's not an outsider lens. It's, it's one that gets to travel. It's one that gets to see and has built businesses in multiple markets, uh, has listed companies in multiple markets, and is now watching what's happening here. Mm. Um, and able and able to objectively say, um, this is something so different from anything I've ever seen before in any other, in any other market or country I've ever been before. Mm. And and, uh, and and you know, and this is this is me based here taking notice. And it's hard to to understand what's going on, to to read, to research, to find out, make sense of what you see, um, because not everything is so obvious in China. Mm. So I imagine it's way more difficult from the outside but that's no excuse to not do it um you've had this yeah. you've had this sort of long-term perspective as well which i guess you know 
even though you say you're in the market now and you're based here and you're still, you know, you're always constantly challenged to keep up with what, what's going on there, as, you know, and that's obviously the even bigger challenge for people coming from the outside. You've had this sort of long-term perspective. And I, I remember, I mean, I think it's worth sort of sharing with the listeners. You tell a story about when you were first, I don't know if it was your first or second trip to China, whether it was with school or when you were later, um, a bit older, but you went to China and you sort of snuck off, didn't you, away from the, the beaten track? And Because I guess it must have been quite controlled when you went back and, you, you know, they showed you around China and, you know, it would have been a, a controlled experience. You know, you wouldn't be able to look in the back streets and so on. But you, you, you tell a story. Where, where did that take place? Remind me again where that happened, where you sort of got off the beaten track and sort of lost your minders and, you know, you, I don't know if you got into trouble, but... Yeah. What you can share. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, um, it was. It was very much, you know, those first two trips, uh, 13, 14 years old um, with, with school. Uh, we, you know, it was it was almost, it was, I think it was a, a five for one uh, or a 10 for one uh, minder. So local, mar- like, not secret police, but, you know, the equivalent mm. um, to 10 kids or five kids. So we had these minders that would follow us everywhere. And, and you stick out like a sore thumb anyway, because everyone's just wearing blue for a start. Um, but you weren't allowed to go anywhere, do anything, see anything. So on the second morning, um, when we realized that there were no shops, there were no there were no restaurants, there were no departments, there was nothing like that. Um, we were staying in the only hotel uh, that there was in, in southern China, which was the White Swan, which is still around today. Um, where we were staying across the road, there was a small little village um, with, a, with a Communist Party, Communist Party uh, co-op, and it had the store there. And, you know, in those old school stores with the glass cabinets uh, that have the items laid out for display. Well, this wasn't their, only their display. This was actually their, their that was the inventory as well. It's when I realized that really quickly, um, that they literally had one toothbrush, uh, two bits of chewing gum, uh, some kind of weird, I don't know, pretend chocolate type thing and some bags of chips and things and, um, and other bits and pieces, dried fruit. I think myself and a friend, we realized really quickly that there's 200 kids on this school trip. We should buy all of this stuff now um, and then sell it to the rest of the team at a profit. And that was where we had to, like, we kind of disappeared off the track, um, went to this place, brought all our our, uh, our money, which we had to change. Because in those days, China had two currencies. You had a foreigner currency, which you had to buy when you landed and you it was and was worth nothing when you left. And then the local currency. And you weren't allowed the local currency. So if you got caught with the local currency, you know, you'd get in, in big trouble. Mm. And so mm. we needed to... First, get our foreign currency converted into local on the black market. This is like two 13-year-olds. Convert that to local currency, then go to the co-op and buy everything. We literally bought every single thing we could see um, with local currency. And then we came back and we set up shop in our hotel room. Wow. And so that was, you know, it was interesting. It was fun. Um, obviously, you know, again, going against the grain. But it allowed us, well, allowed me anyway, to understand somewhat the, the dynamics that was happening, uh, at least of what was happening around me as opposed to being someone that was just observing, oh, God, there's no chocolate. Mm. As an entrepreneur, did that sort of teach you, I mean, it's an interesting lesson, isn't it, that you profited, I guess, you know, I mean, I guess beyond the financial part, there's the real bragging rights with your mates, wasn't it, of having done this. Did oh. you, you, you know, that, it taught you something about breaking the rules in a real way. I mean, everybody talks about breaking the rules now, but you actually were breaking the rules. And I suppose the... The, the ramifications of what you did, it could have been quite harsh. You could have get into a lot of trouble. Right. I mean, yep. did, did that sort of reinforce anything in you or was that sort of just a kind of like a, a I mean, diversion? 
the breaking the rules things is is an interesting one. Um, so I think we had startup weekend here a few weeks ago, and, and I, I kind of opened the Sunday um, the university one. So it was all you know uh, university students, and I opened that that Sunday morning. And part of basically my speech was why you shouldn't be here, right? why you shouldn't be doing this, why right. you shouldn't be doing startup stuff, you shouldn't be living in this world. Just go and get a job. And that was one of the things I talked about, which was actually, you know, standing up for something and not doing stuff that, that everyone else is doing. And that breaking the rules goes to that. So, like, I'm a firm believer in rules only so that they can be broken, right? So I don't run on rules. I break rules, but I run on principles. And that's kind of what's been drummed into me uh, or I've drummed into myself maybe as well ever since I was a kid. So if we're talking specifically about China episode, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, it's just one, another data point for me. But, um, you know, my life has been like that. And I'm sure if you asked my mother, she would she would have wished it was something else and, and it would have been a lot easier for her. Um, yeah, I think if you don't, you know, it's hard for us to back founders as well when the founder says, I'm going to change the world. And then you say to the founder, well, what have you done so far that you've really just, you know, like stuck your neck out or or done something ridiculous where everyone has just said, you have got no chance. And if they can't think of anything, because they've literally got straight A's at school, uh, they then got a scholarship, they then went to X and Y, they then got a good job, well, you're hardly going to change the world or set it on fire now, are you? Hmm. Um, I mean, you might, but basic probability says that you won't. And so I think if, you know, going back to, to the fund as well, our fund, you know, we're, we're contrarian, we're founder focused. Right? We're all founders in the fund, the GPs, and, and it's a real important part of what we do. And so we kind of have to eat our own dog food, yeah? Um, we have to be that kind of person. We're looking for the kind of people that we were. Um, you know, we're looking for better people than we are, but we know the kind of person that we're looking for because we know the kind of person that succeeds. Um, and so, yeah, I think breaking the rules is definitely a part of that. How do you find that when you, I mean, in, in China, for example, how do you look for that kind of insight that this person really is a rule breaker and not just saying it because it sounds good in the startup world? You know, how do you, but you know, if you were to write a resume, you're not going to say, yeah, I got into trouble because, you know, I, I did this at school or, you know, I went off the beaten track and I profited from breaking the rules here. People don't talk about that, especially I don't know. in Asia. Wouldn't you? Like why? I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, first, why wouldn't you talk about it? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at myself, my my family, or or like my personal family, or my or my my my, my fellow GPs, we, we're we're pretty open with the rules that we've broken. Um, you know, I mean, even from from youth, not only just the business aspect or, or professional aspect, but I think it's it's about looking for people that have opinions. Um, I often say, like, I don't, I really don't care about the what. I just care about the how and the why. Mm. And, it, and it's true. It's not just a soundbite. It really is true. Like, if you ask anyone that's close to me, it probably frustrates them because I really don't care about the facts or the what. I just want to understand how and why. And if we're solid on that, then, then I'm good to go. And I think when people are able to confidently explain that, um, then you're able to see if that person's that, that kind of person we're talking about. Mm. I think in China, you've got this different different dimension as well, which is, which is kind of the opposite of rule breaking, which is the macro force in China is huge, right? The government here is, plays such an integral role um, in, in everything. Uh, and again, I think, you know, not I think, I know most people around the world just don't understand this and they can't wrap their head around it unless they consciously try to make sense of it. But it's not one of those things that you just wake up and think, well, I'm going to make sense of this. 
Mm. So in that respect, when the government here is so integral, um, you're not, you know, when we say breaking rules, we don't mean literally go and break a government rule, um, you know, that says you're going to go to jail. Um, or maybe it does, but but that's not, you know, we're looking for people who are who have a character traits or behaviorisms that are principle-based, that if a rule is arbitrary and it doesn't make sense or a process is arbitrary and doesn't make sense, well, that's how things are done right now. If they're doing things differently um, because they can find a better way, then, then that's a start as opposed to someone that's just trying to fit in or solve the problem. Hmm. Um, just on that China thing, so if you ask most people around the world, uh, do you have confidence in your government? Most people would look at you ridiculously, first of all. Are you kidding me? These are politicians we're talking about, right? Like, uh, you've probably got confidence in one thing. They're going to say and do anything to get your vote. That's the only thing you're confident about, right? Mm. And so you might get, like, if you look at some of the surveys, you might get something like 20-something percent in most OECD markets have some level of confidence, six and above or something, you know, in, in the government. If you ask the average person on the street here, do you have confidence in the government? That's a very different question from, do you like, do you agree, uh, do you prefer, right? It's not that question. It's, do you have confidence? You will get almost 100% absolutely. Whatever the Chinese government says they're going to do, you will absolutely do, right? So when you have that as a backdrop, um, you know, breaking rules, again, has another context. And so understanding that macro view that's there, uh, because China's macro is a global macro, um, again, something that's never happened before. Wrapping your head around that um, from a, a either a founder perspective or an investor perspective is really important because you're no longer looking at things just from a what's a good solution or what's a good market. You're actually looking at you know what's the direction, what's the course that has been set by the general and his lieutenants, and that's the course that's going to be carried out. So you know if you're if you're within that course or on that direction or on that track, you've got a chance of success. If you're fighting that and going against the tide, doesn't matter how great you think you are, um, you're dead because you can't win. And that's a very fundamental difference between the East and the West, you know, where the West is like, well, I'm going to go against the tide and I'm going to do hack my way through it or prove something else. So again, it's this delicate balance here of, uh, you know, of, of breaking rules based on principles, finding your own way, but understanding how you fit uh, in this much bigger, longer term China global view. Yeah, I, th I think you articulate it better than anybody because you have that ability to put it in the, the, the context of a, a more global view, which is, I think it's really important, you know, not just, uh, you know, for, for local people understanding themselves, that you're sort of putting it into the context of how does that compare to everywhere else. I mean, you, you say yourself, you feel very much at home there. Uh, well, I'm really curious because, you know, just a thought experiment, if we can, Jeffrey, like, you know, mm. if you were to take... Jeffrey Hanley, and for whatever reasons, you had to go and live in New Zealand for a year or back to the UK for the year or back to you know Silicon Valley for a year. Let's say you had to go there and you had the same amount of resources as you had in China and you had a similar kind of network. Would you get a different result in a year? Because I, I'm really curious beyond you know access to resources and so on, just in terms of attitude where we are, you know, in terms of the kind of companies that you deal with, the people that you come across on a daily basis, your personality and how that sort of, you know, interacts with those ecosystems as well. Do you think things would be 
different in a way that you'd say that no Shanghai is absolutely the best place for me right here right now do you think you can make an equal effort in a place like Auckland I'm not joking but I mean yeah, you know sure. or, or London or you know San Jose or you know somewhere in the valley for example yeah. what kind of results would you get so I think you know quite easily uh, if you look if I, if I went back to New Zealand now um, so my my partner Chris he's going the fellow GP he's going back to New Zealand tomorrow or this evening and I know like over there um, life's a bit slower paced you know, like you literally have, no matter where you live, you've got a beach within half an hour of you. Um, mm. and, and you can ski in the mountains within an hour. And so I think people are just a little bit more laid back. That doesn't mean there are people that, uh, that have big visions and, and, and are doing amazing things. Um, your time difference isn't, you know, it's just time difference. But you are flight difference. You're, you know, 12 hours on a plane uh, away from Asia and, and the States and Europe from anywhere. So... You, um, you know, you, you are a little bit isolated in that sense. But I guess what that has given rise to in New Zealand is, is this thing they call the number eight wire mentality, which is basically number eight wires, a, a kind of uh, agricultural fencing wire. And they basically use that for anything, to solve anything, right? Your car's mm. broken down, use number eight. You know, you, you, you need a leash for your dog, number eight. You want to lock your child in the house, number eight, right? But you, that was where that mentality came from. And so it was a, a bandu or like kind of fixed with what you've got mentality. And so that was really, you know, important component that added to myself and my brother's lives when we founded our first few companies in New Zealand. But if I went back now, um, I think it would be it would be very difficult. Um, that's not to say that we don't have a close relationship with New Zealand. We do, uh, especially with the fund, and especially because my my, uh, my business partner is, is from there. Um, if I went to the states, <laughs> um, would I be able to get more done? Uh, I think the costs of everything. Uh, in the states, uh, are way way too high. Mm. Uh, government regulation, uh, red tape, um, is you know is is just so prevalent everywhere. There's just so much rent seeking and so much fat uh, on things, um, which is is unfortunate. Um, and not to mention the rest of the kind of the, the cultural or mind shift. I would have a hard time, I think, right now, um, getting around a few things that that, that I see. I mean, how would you sum this up? Okay, so in China, we have what's called 996, right? 996 is basically the work week. Yeah? Um, you know, most people around the world, they, you know, what do you work in France? 32 hours a, a, a week, 34 yeah, yeah. hours a week, something like that, right? I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, um, but that's what they do. Um, in most other markets, you're talking about 40 hours. And then, you know, we, in our, in our startup world, we're like, well, we work all the time. We're super hardworking. Okay, that's fine. That's out of necessity. The rule of thumb, like just general rule in China, like normal corporate world life is 996, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Like wrap your head around that, right? Like, of course, people are going to get more done. You're talking about an extra 50% just on the hours and then a whole other day. Mm. Now, that's not paying anyone extra. That's not overtime. That's not like, all oh, amazing companies. That's just normal. So if normal is 50% plus a day, well, unless, you're, unless you are just so super efficient and you know, clearly poles ahead in terms of your intellect and your process and your systems and your product and everything, well, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to get your ass thrashed right? mm. when you've got 1.5 billion people doing 996. I mean, the productivity, and not efficiency, but the productivity uh, is a lot higher. And I think that's 
something again that people it's not that they don't think about it it's not that they don't know i mean what's the old you know the old stereotypical thing you know oh there's a chinese kid in your class he's good at maths and he works really hard and he does his homework and he doesn't play doesn't doesn't go out with friends at night you will guess what that's the whole frigging country right mm. but we do have a good life and we do things smart here but we all work like this so you know you tell me if you're comfortable on the other side of the world and that's what you're facing mm. and your own team is trying to kind of clocking out at seven o'clock or six o'clock you'd be in trouble in this global world right Absolutely. Add to that as well now, which I think is, uh, I mean, I experienced this when I came to Shanghai last time I met you and just hanging out in China Accelerator. And th there was a real sense, I mean, you've got that, that exactly as you said it, which is productivity wise, you just can't compete. They're going to thrash your ass. It's going to be 50% no matter what you do. And then on top of that now, there's that real sense that in Shanghai, and this probably is the same across most of the tier one cities in, in China, but there's a sense that things get done in the sense that not just terms of productivity, but let's say I turn up at China Accelerator and, you know, I bump into Jeffrey Handley and, hey, let's do a podcast. Yeah, why not? Let's just, you know, Kapil's here and Oscar's here and let's just all kind of get together, do a podcast, knock something out and create that content. In different cities, in different parts of the world, I'm not sure if that would have happened. I know it's a, it's a sweeping generalization, but let's say I went back to London and did it there. It would be like, oh, okay, now I've got to get off and I've got to do this. And people, I don't know what it is. There's something special about Shanghai when I turned up that was it that, you know, everybody had come from outside, therefore we'd pre-qualified. There's a sample bias, isn't there? That yeah. These are people of action who get off their ass, do stuff. Maybe it was yeah. that. Um, maybe it was a I sense think that's that part of it. I right. mean, if you're talking about like you know um, either mixed race or, or, or foreign people that are coming here, there is that that uh, that understanding, right? That some that you're looking at a, a person that's like you that's packed their bags and and just got on a plane and turned up somewhere else, and so they they're doing stuff, right, for better or worse. But I think wider than that is you know just for, for, for the average Chinese too is. The sense that there is no, there's nothing to lose, Graham. Right? I mean, there is no baggage. There's no, there's no legacy infrastructure, no legacy system, no, no establishment as such that is that needs protecting. Right? Mm. There's no, there's, there's nothing that I have to to weigh up to say. Well, if I if I put my neck out and I do something like this, or if I if I just decide to to you know to do a podcast or do a business or get into business, will I put my my family name? Will I put my my three generations of, of earnings, will I put my blah, blah, blah at risk? Because there isn't anything there, right? There's nothing on the ledger. It's at zero. And so we're stacking millionaires up here, what, by the hundred a week or something, yeah? I don't even know what the number is now. Um, you know, and, and this next batch are coming out from tier three and tier four cities. So cities that you and I have never even heard of, let alone people that have not been to China before. And that's where the, the highest rate of self-made millionaires uh, are being created. Uh, on, on a weekly, daily basis. And so these guys are, are people who were literally 20 years ago without utilities and now um, are crafting, whether it's technology, business models, process, hardware, software, uh, but crafting it not only for China, but for the world, right? I mean, they're, they're building things to, to beat or be world-beating uh, and world-leading. And and that's 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 the main thing that I think is exciting. And so mm. what you picked up on is is just the kind of ancillary or the tail end effect of that um, is is what you felt basically when you when you were in when you were in this building. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what's it like to actually work with that that generation of entrepreneurs who have nothing to lose in China? Do, do you ever sort of find yourself getting blown away by them? Because, you know, we're a bit older. You know, we, we yeah. have stuff to lose. We have, you know, a history now. We have personal histories, right? We have a reputation to some degree. And, you know, we have money, we have time and so on, or all these kind of things, which... You know, for somebody who's younger, they don't have these things. And, you know, you want to see them challenging all of that. Do you ever sort of sit across from a table from a founder or, in a, you know, over a coffee with a founder and who's a lot younger than you and Asian and you think, oh, my God, like, th- this is it. This is real. Th- these guys really are challenging me and blowing me away. Yeah. And, you know, like that meeting I mentioned the other day, uh, which we had the other day, which, you know, there were in, that, in that office, there's like eight PhDs and 10 masters in a room for 25 people. That alone is just, you know, it's, I'll admit, it's scary, right? It's confronting. So, um, you know, when, you, when you're confident in yourself and then you think, oh, shit, these, this is what I'm facing. This is the other side. Um, and, and, yeah, you're right. The younger founders that um, really have so much drive um, and not only nothing to lose, but you've got to understand, I think, that every day of their life, if you think someone that's 30 years old or under 30, Every single day of that person's life has been better than the day before, mm. right? Literally, every single day was better than the day before. They've not seen that other side of the world yet, right? Everything's just been going up. And so when that's what's in, what's, what you've seen, what you've path you've walked, and the drive and the hunger is there in front of you or, or, or powering you, and everything around you, again, that macro around you, force that's bigger than you is is off progress right you know that you're seeing buildings being ripped down pulled together pulled off skyscrapers 100 floors tall in less than a year uh you're seeing whole um you know whole communities being lifted out of poverty uh you know what are we moving out of poverty this over the next seven years another 40 million um you know i mean you're, you're moving the rurals hundreds of millions 400 400 million rurals to the cities um over a space of 10 years you're seeing all this change in front of you. Um, you know, you, that's what's buoying these people. That's what's driving them. And so like when I lived in New York, um, in, in my last business, that was one thing I noticed there really, really obviously to me. Everyone in New York wasn't, it wasn't, you know, their tomorrow was not better than yesterday. It was the other way around almost, right? It was like people pining for the day before, pining for last year, pining for the days of old. And, you know, and I, obviously that's where, the, from a politics perspective, that's where it's led to their, their, their government now, is for those very reasons. You know, it's looking backwards and still hoping for, it's hoping forwards with the, with the vision of backwards. Whereas here, everything is about tomorrow. Uh, and, and every tomorrow is better than the day before. And that's, that's the thing that blows me away, is, is watching how they respond to that uh, and understanding and, and watching them and seeing how they understand the forces bigger than themselves. Hmm. Now, what does that look like for tomorrow, though, Graham? That's the thing, yeah? Like, you know, in terms of, of where are these Chinese founders going? Um, and it's not staying in China, right? I mean, there was a call to arms uh, last year originally um, in, uh, in the, the five-year plan about, you know, taking China and Chinese brands globally. But then most recently, as a result of that, you know, ZTE and Huawei and the trading, you know, trade issues between the states and China... I mean, I don't know if it's been reported on much, but there was another call to arms by both Premier Lee and um, and the president and President Xi. Um, 
you know, making it very clear that that they they're not able to leave some scraps on the table now, um, which they were quite prepared to before, as in like other countries can win other you know some of these these wars, some of these battles, and they can be a leader in X and Y as long as we're clear on what we're leading. They've made it very clear now that that's not going to happen um, because the rules of the game were changed. And so now they are not leaving anything on the table for anyone. And so they will be, you know, rolling out from a policy perspective, already have, but through to actual the lieutenants on the ground, the corporates, the private companies, executing on these policies to own, build, manage, dominate industries that they had no, they weren't planning on dominating before. They're going to do that now. Um, you know, even to what is it? Soybeans. You know, as part of that trade fallout between the states and China was soybeans. Hmm. And so now, like, I feel sorry for the soybean makers in, in, in the States. They have no idea. But, like, government up north, uh, one of the provinces, uh, at the height of that thing three weeks ago, they basically, the, the central government said, right, we're planting soybeans now. And they instructed every single farmer in that province, because it was the most um, highest propensity of output of soybeans, and they instructed every farmer in that province to scrap whatever crops they have and to plant soybeans according to the plan that they had written already, like an emergency plan, and said, right, this is how we're going to do it. They've put in grants, they've shut in technology, they've got a fund um, which has come down to the south and to the western parts, um, which is an agri-tech fund, uh, which they're dropping dollars into a lot of other private agri-tech funds, matching funds, to specifically find technology to help the soybean thing. So, you know, while the soybean manufacturers in the States think that this might be a temporary thing and once a trade war is fixed, we're all good, and here my orders coming back from China, they're sorely mistaken. It didn't have to end up this way, but that one's lost. And there's a lot more of those happening. And that's the thing about what's going to happen tomorrow. That's what's buoying these Chinese founders. It's because they see this day-to-day real life in front of them. If, if we were to go back, let's say, 20, or 20 years, let's say, I mean, maybe even not that far, and you, you were a, a wealthy Asian family could have been China, could have been Hong Kong. Your kids were of age now where they needed to go to university. You would sort of save up the money and send them to the States. You would send them to the best universities in the States. Uh, We've seen that sort of generation of talent come through American universities from Asia, right? So that now is changing in, in, in the sort of the view of what you just talked about you're talking about those battles last you know they don't know in the west what's happening really they kind of think it might be a temporary thing i'm wondering is, is there going to be a point where if you're sort of like you, you're setting the scene for what's happening in, in for the next generation that now it's like we've got over this sort of idea of like china being like you know sweatshops and cheap t-shirts and garments and so on that's gone that that's a different era and now all the kind of things that you describe even down to soybeans are happening everywhere and the 996 as well you know is there going to come a point where or is it happening now or will it ever happen in your view because i think you're probably the person who should know this best because of your perspective like you know like american kids graduate coming up to college and their parents say no you've got to get out to china we're going to send you there because you have a better chance i mean Forget the whole sort Absolutely. of university or not university argument, but for that generation, what, at what point are we? Are we there? Is it going to happen? Will it ever happen? Yeah. So I think we're we're definitely uh, at that early adopter um, point if we look at it like as if we'd look at consumer product, right? So I mentioned my partner Chris. So he's just had his son born six seven weeks ago, and you know I know when talking with him, um, you know he's moving up this part of the world from New Zealand, bringing 
his family with him. Hmm. And that's a very real part of his thinking is if my child is brought up in this place, they're going to be much better equipped than I was or than, than, than his competitive friends will be or, or you know, peers will be in the future. And so this is the kind of planning. You know, Chris's son is only six or eight weeks old, but that's the level of planning that's done. Now, that's just a sample of one, right? If you look at um, more recently, so in, in the portfolio, we have a company called China Admissions. They're based in Beijing. Um, they're also a, a, an SOSB and a CA uh, alum, and they help bring foreign students to study at university in China. And so that number has been growing, I think it's like 35 something percent a year on year. It's grown probably 300% over the last three years um, and will continue to grow. Again, it's very transparent. The government's plan is very clear. They've set a goal for how many foreign students they want here. They pay full scholarships, including flights home and, and everything like that. Why? Because they know it's a part of the wider plan for China. Um, they need some skill sets. They need some soft skills. They need some hard skills. They also need that returning foreign student going back to his or her own country, carrying a positive message. And so when you're talking about five, six, ten million of these students uh, and you know coming to study and going back home with nothing but a positive impression, that's all going to help be a part of this this move, this this shift that's happening. Mm. Now I did hear somewhere recently, um, very recently, that Alibaba has committed to a, a very large number, right? So I, I, I haven't found the source source um, uh, anywhere online or reporting of it, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands, right? So they've committed to hiring hundreds of thousands of foreign workforce um, in overseas markets as well as a part of their growth and domination. But as a part of their hiring of these hundreds of thousands, two or three hundred thousands, they're offering them all scholarships, full scholarships, to Chinese universities. And once you go, as you're studying, you have a part-time job at Alibaba. Once you finish studying and you graduate, you're, you're guaranteed a job. You know, and this is, this is one of the global faces of corporate China and, and, and digital innovative corporate China. And that's their policy. That's their strategy. That's their move. Now, show me one other company in the world it has a strategy as far-reaching as that, um, one that is as, I guess, I was going to say selfless, but that's kind of a spastic word right now, one that's imbued with as much national pride as that, uh, and and one that is actually cost-effective, right? I mean, they've done the numbers, right? I mean, it is an expensive, far-reaching, costly policy or strategy to run, um, but it is efficient use of money, um, and it will achieve the aims. But show me one other company whether it's a one-year-old, five-year-old, or hundred-year-old Western company that thinks that big. Hmm. And literally, I will eat my shoes. Yeah, and yeah. You can't, you can't show me. No one can. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm quiet because I'm thinking, my, my brain's ticking away, Jeffrey, so forgive me. But I, I think you're probably right there. And certainly if, you know, if people know that they're welcome to tweet us at Asia Tech Pod or yeah you know, please do you know we'd be really fascinated to hear because I mean this is and conversations if anyone's listening that wants to like study here um, also get in touch and I'll put you in touch with um, with the crew at China Admissions and they will uh, they'll handle everything for you yeah, I mean, that's, that's well no totally I mean I think there's a lot of people you know what we're discovering now Jeffrey is that where we started Asia Tech Podcast most of the listeners are in Asia but now an increasing number outside 
And you know, often those you're talking about those early adopters again. They're they're curious. They they know something's happening, and they know they need to have a piece of the action. And they're just kind of looking for the right moment or the right way to onboard to get into Asia. And that could be, like you say, China admissions. Or you know, it could be the founder who's looking at the soft landing into Asia, so they can bring their their business over here. But it's it's happening. But you know, that said, and I think it's important to talk about this, just sort of in summary, is there's sort of a two speed world here, isn't there? There's on the one hand those that get it, which is what you're talking about, and you know, who understand this in the the meta context, this big shift, because you've seen it on the long-term timeline, right? It's not just like a trend that's happening. It won't just sort of disappear overnight. And, you know, Alibaba as well, you know, they're thinking in terms of 10, 20 years. And at the, at the same time, we're talking about, you know, like your your partner, um, your business partner bringing his family to, to Asia because they're thinking on these kind of timelines. And yet at the same time, you know, I read just recently that I think it was the Foreign Language Association of college or high schools in in the u.s something they, they publish their data every year about the number of people studying foreign languages mm. and it was fascinating reading because you know you would have thought that based on this conversation today that people think, learning chinese right mandarin, mandarin 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 but the numbers have what gone down well, well i don't have the data but i'll tell you the numbers have gone down in the last six years and this is this is the bit that i don't get and maybe somebody can help me out here there are more people in the u.s studying italian than there are mandarin that's insane are you serious yeah i know i'm i'm dead serious man so I, I weird. That, maybe like that what was that movie with matt damon talented mr ripley right <laughs> Italy. i don't know maybe it's like I don't know. But we were leaving it too speed. I think think the the point I want to get across is that for those that sort of are in the world where people don't get it, is that don't lose heart because, you know, you're banging your head against the wall talking about Asia to many people. It's it's not a case of trying to convert these people and say, oh, you know, Asia is going to be an important Mm. part of your future. It's like rather than waste your energy on those people, find the people who do get it. You know, get it. Yeah, I think there are more and more increasingly that, that, that either get it or want to get it. Um, but, you know, the, the sad reality, as I said, is that everyone needs to recognize because it doesn't matter what business you're in. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're a team, if you're a founder, if you're an investor, if you're an advisor, whatever. It doesn't matter if you're the number one in your market in the States or, or anywhere else. You know, China is, needs to be in your plans because if it's not, then the only person that's going to lose is you because you're in China's plans already, right? I mean, the founder here has already got you in his plans, uh, whether that's a positive or negative. You know, just think about the fact that, what do we have, 120 million Chinese will travel next year. Um, of that, maybe 70, 80 million will go to the States. That's next year. There's 70 or 80 million Chinese people going to be in the States. The year after or three years from now, that number will top 100-something million going to the States. That's one-third of the entire U.S. population will be Chinese at some point at some time, right, when they're there. And those people are going to need just like anyone else does, whether it's Yelp, Zinc, Google, um, you know, Uber, or anything else, any other service, any anything at all. When you're talking now of 100 million, a third of your population is not going to speak the same language as you, and they already have an affinity to a platform or a product that they use, and they use that platform and product not only in China, but in every other country that they go to, right? As a part of One Belt, One Road, China's policy is 73. 77, 73 countries hmm. that form hmm. a from Europe all the way down to Australia and New Zealand. 
all of those countries will be and are already running on inside the, the Chinese strategies, right? So those companies there, the brands there, the, the teams that are winning are all aligned to this. So if you think this person is going to travel three quarters of the world and everywhere they go, they're using a service or services and a hundred million of them will get to the States a year. And what you expect them to just kind of change and use an American service or a service that's not even catering to them? Of course not. So if the US companies don't have strategies in place, whether it's acquisition strategies, partner strategy, or build out strategies, they will lose. There is no other option, right? Mm. And so, you know, when, when you kind of like dial it back for us as a fund and, and as founders and advisors, like what are we looking for? We're looking for those founders that get this, right? That actually understand this somewhat arrogant, somewhat polarizing, somewhat very challenging view. Um, and some of those founders are Western. Some of those founders are, are, are mixed race like myself. Uh, and some of those founders are local. But that's the type of founder that we're looking for. Those are the kind of companies that we back um, that have these big, big ballsy views but are very clearly predicated on data. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would love to meet more of them. So wherever you are in the world, if you are listening to this, if you're one of those people, um, you know, please get in touch. Um, or if you're a founder that's interested in China and you want a, a soft landing and you to come through China Accelerator, um, also please get in touch. Um, you know, we have two intakes a year. And so we uh, have the United Nations of founders here in, mm. in, this, in this place. Um, where you were, where you were when you were here, Graham, and um, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great environment. It's soft landing, but it's it's hard. I mean, it's real, it's real China, and you know, and, and we're always looking for great teams. Um, so yeah, so I think reach out. we need more to reach out, and more people that want to to actually make sense of this very scary thing. Because I, I understand it's scary if I'm not from here. If I wasn't from here, if I was from somewhere else. And someone starts giving me these big numbers and these, you know, whether it's big numbers of VC money being thrown at stuff or just 1.5 billion people or the growth rates. I understand it. I get it. It's scary. And, and you know, what do you do when you're scared? You, you run or you fight or you defend yourself as opposed to stand there and think about it really carefully. Um, and I think you know, that's what's actually needed is not running, not fighting, not defense. It's actually contemplation uh, to figure out what everyone's role is uh, and how to make the best of this. Before uh, before I ask you for your details where people can actually reach out to you, Jeffrey, I just want to, I mean, you said something quite profound and I just want to highlight it, if I may, and I don't know if you've used this before, but you said, and I think it's phenomenal, that even if China is not in your plans, you are in China's plans. Yeah. And yeah. that, I think, really sort of sums it up today about the importance does, of this conversation. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not lip service, it's not a throwaway, it's for real. It's happening right? now. I mean, and China's, you know, this is a funny thing as well, like, um, China's one of the most transparent governments in the world, yeah? I know it sounds ridiculous, but it is true. All of their plans, all of their strategies, you know, going out years, are all online to see. All the transcripts of all their internal meetings, all their speeches, all their, um, their, uh, their policy directives and initiatives are all online, and all translated into English as well. So it's not hard to see what the intended path is, and coupled with the fact that, as we said earlier, almost 100% of the population has confidence in the government, well, then that intended path is the path. That's what's going to happen. That is the reality. And that's the easiest place to start, I think, is to mm. actually see what that crystal ball is. Um, before we go, actually, if you don't mind, Graham, um, Chris, my partner I was talking about, he's actually just stepped in the room. Um, 
All he's right. Able to, he's able to introduce himself and uh, <laughs> and say hi to the world. So, as uh, as some people may know, um, Hightower, we we announced that we were launching a blockchain fund uh, specifically for for that area. As more and more of our portfolio companies were looking at uh, at either the technology or the fundraising side, and and there seemed to be a lot of activity again. China China competitive advantages were apparent, um, and so I uh, scouted high and low and found someone who was equally contrarian, uh, equally driven, and someone who has, has a really strong track record in this space uh, as, as an investor um, mm. and as an entrepreneur as well. Um, and so, yeah, so Chris Grimshaw-Jones, say hello. Hello, Graham. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Good, mate. How are you? Excellent. I've heard all about you. Really? <laughs> you're heading up to, so you're mo- making the move to Shanghai. That's that's right. Yeah, yeah. It uh, came here for the first time in January this year. Um, uh-huh. Completely blown away. Uh, it was not what I thought it was going to be like. Um, so I grew up in New Zealand. I was born in Bangkok, um, and like yeah, literally blown away. Like Jingan, the band, it, it was beautiful, beautiful. Awesome. And did you bring your what was it? Your razor wire? I can't remember what it is. You guys down in New Zealand, the eight wire, or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fix a few problems up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, part of the reason why I just had to just pick up and and, and move over was just, uh, you know, as as you said, I'm strongly focused on the blockchain space. I think I truly think China's really winning that race in the world in terms of you know having the right people in the right places and and, and focusing. You know, deploying capital and pushing it forward, um, and also they sort of, from the outside, it seemed like there was a hold on it. But I knew that there was stuff going on inside, so I sort of knew that I had to get inside to get my hmm. feet on the ground to to get get things moving. Chris, well, really nice meeting you. I would love to get you on the radio at some point in the future when you've got your feet on the ground and you, your family settled in Shanghai, and we can have a chat. That would be awesome. Awesome, mate. Thank you, Ron. Cool. Great. Jeffrey, been a real yeah. pleasure having you on the show. That's Jeffrey Hanley, everybody, mentor, advisor, investor, GP at Hightower Capital, and the candid contrarian. Really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm sure people listening to this are going to want to reach out and make contact with you. What's the best way? What's the easiest way to be in touch? Yeah, sure. Um, LinkedIn's the, the easiest place to find me, uh, and my details are on there. If you're in China, and even if you're not, WeChat's the easiest. Um, so WeChat ID is just GJ Handley. Um, but yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, connect with me on WeChat. Um, I'm, I'm quite vocal about my opinions. Um, so if you've got top skin, please don't, uh, don't get offended. <laughs> but if you get in touch, um, I'll definitely reply. Um, and I'm, I'm open to having conversations with people. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure and inspiration as well talking to you. And it's obviously an interview I've been looking forward to doing for some time and you've delivered. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.